So let me ask this question. How do we build a healthy church? What does a healthy church look like and sound like and feel like? What does a healthy church do? Let me ask it this way, maybe. What, what is teaching in a healthy church look like and sound like? What does worship in a healthy church look like? What is serving in a healthy church look like and feel like? What do leaders and leadership culture in a healthy church look like? Well, these are questions that we need to ask ourselves as part of the church because health in a church is vital. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write to a young leader named Timothy. Timothy was a young man who had been discipled by Paul, and he had been left in the city of Ephesus to oversee a church that Paul had started. And like any young leader in any church, Timothy and the church at Ephesus were facing a number of struggles and a number of challenges to health. Some of the things that they faced... They had false teachers who were bringing in bad discipleship and teaching. That challenged the health of the church. There was an attraction to sin and greed and not taking godliness seriously. That was a threat and a challenge to health. There was poor leadership and there were people trying to grab power and influence surrounding Timothy. That was a challenge to health. There was an indifference to evangelism and bad attitudes about the culture around them. This challenged health. There were interpersonal conflicts between young and old, male and female, rich and poor, boss and employer, and this challenged health. There was disagreement on how to spend financial resources and care for those in need, and this challenged health. Not unlike the challenges you and I face and into the midst of all these challenges to health, God sends his word to Timothy. He gives him a blueprint, as it were, for a healthy church, and it is this blueprint that we at First City Church are also called to follow and submit to. And at the core of the book of First Timothy is a concern for church health. This is what Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So notice what scripture calls the church. First, the household of God. The church is a family. It is meant to love and care for and nurture sons and daughters of God. And and you understand that within a biological family, there are healthy biological families and there are unhealthy biological families. And the health of your family that you were raised in largely contributed to your own health as an individual. And so we understand that for the church to be a family means that it is important that we are healthy because we nurture one another in spiritual health. And so we need one another. We need the church to be healthy so that we grow as mature disciples. The church is also a pillar and buttress of truth. And so if you understand architecture, in a building, a pillar or a buttress supports the structure. And so if you have an unhealthy pillar, that structure is unsound, and it can can crack, it can break, it can be damaged, or it can completely fall in. And so if the church is unhealthy, then our ability to buttress the truth, which is the gospel, is damaged. 
that we, we are unable to properly support the truth and improperly able to proclaim the gospel to this world, or even worse, we might do damage to the message of the gospel. So it is vital that the church is healthy for the mission of God to go forward in the world. And so coming off our study of the Sermon on the Mount, I want to spend the next three months, so April, May, and June, in the book of 1 Timothy, considering what it means to build a healthy church. So the kind of the unofficial title for this sermon series is Blueprint for a Healthy Church. And the call to build a healthy church is on all of us who call First City home. Hear me on this. It's not just for the pastors, not just for Paul and I. It's not just for Paul and I and the deacons. It's not just for us and the gospel community leaders. If you call First City Church your home, it is on you. You are part of building a healthy church here. And so we're all called to take ownership and care about the health of the church. And so we're going to begin our study in 1 Timothy by considering healthy discipleship. So our mission as a church is to make disciples. And for our church to be healthy, our discipleship methods need to be healthy. And if they're going to be healthy, they need to follow the word of God. They need to be shaped by the word of God. And so this morning, from our passage, I want to look at two things that healthy discipleship isn't, and then contrast those things with what healthy discipleship is. So what healthy discipleship isn't, and what healthy discipleship is. So if you have your Bibles, Bible app, please turn to 1 Timothy, and we're going to mostly hang out in verses 3 through 7. So the first thing that healthy discipleship isn't, healthy discipleship isn't theological speculation and uncertainty. And so let's unpack what I mean by that. So in verses 3 and 4, this is what we read. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so to protect the health of the church, Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus, and one of the primary reasons is to confront these false teachers. So there were a group of individuals that were coming in and they were teaching things contrary to the gospel. Now, it's not entirely certain. We don't know from this text what these myths and genealogies specifically were. But biblical historians and theologians are pretty confident that what Paul is referencing are a number of extra-biblical texts and teachings that had influence at the time. And the reason Paul calls them myths and genealogies is because this is what they did. They added to the Old Testament. So they added stories about people like Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and, and King David. They added details that weren't part of the historical account of their lives. There were other episodes that they added to the Old Testament, so they were myths. They were stories that weren't true. And they called them genealogies because a lot of the details would sort of add to the family trees of these people. And so you see a lot of genealogies in the Old Testament. Well, these other texts would sort of add to it. Here's some more people that belong to the genealogy. And the specific problem with these teachings, as verse 4 tells us, they promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Speculation. Endless debate about God's word. Endless debate about the details of God's word and is, is this true and is this thing true or is this thing true? And these endless debates and speculations, the effect that they had, they begin to erode people's confidence in the gospel. 
It began to erode people's confidence in the word of God. These weren't just discussions in order to arrive at truth. They were discussions in order to wreck people's confidence. The added details of these myths and genealogies distorted the message of the Old Testament and cast doubt on the truth of the gospel message that Paul and the other first century Christians were proclaiming. It caused people to ask, is this what God's word really means? Is the gospel that the apostles preached really the true gospel? And the doubts and the speculation that these teachings and these false teachers promoted were actually starting to be seen as a virtue. It it became the attitude of these false teachers and the way they were influencing the church was, hey, the more I can speculate, the more I can ask questions, the more I can cast doubt on the word of God, well, the more mature I am. The the more status I have because everyone will see me as this wise person who asks all these questions and thinks very deeply about spiritual things. And then subtly this attitude began to pervade. And the fruit of this is, I don't need the church. Well, I can ask questions and cast doubt on everything. I don't need the church. I don't need to submit underneath leaders and other teachers. I don't need other people to tell me and help me figure out truth because I can just speculate all day long and that makes me mature. And so we have the net effect of all this speculation as unhealthy disciples. Disciples who are not grounded in the truth of the gospel, whose confidence and faith and trust in God is not growing, who are not experiencing the transformation of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, all because they're stuck in this endless cycle of speculating and asking and never arriving at this place of saying, yes, this is true. And really, this isn't unlike aspects of our culture today. Because here's a common cultural message that you and I will hear, that doubts and uncertainty and speculation are actually good things. They're actually healthy things for us. Because here's what happens. People who are certain, they're jerks. They're self-righteous. They oppress people. They try to impose other people's beliefs on others. And so certainty actually fractures society. Certainty actually makes you a hardened person. And this is how this begins to creep into the church. It goes like this. Certainty is what causes churches to become rigid and heavy-handed. Certainty is what causes churches to become tribal and start lacking grace. And church leaders that teach with certainty, well, this causes them to be oppressive and controlling. They're hypocritical. And so the problem is certainty. The problem is walking around thinking we have it figured out. And so the solution to that is, well, let's just be uncertain. Let's just continually speculate and ask questions and, and doubt. And, and, and that's humble. That, that, that's right. That's good for us to do. Let's, let's kind of hang out in that place of humility and speculation and doubt and keep asking questions. Let's never arrive at a place of confident assertion about what God's word teaches because that will lead us to become self-righteous jerks. And no one wants to be a self-righteous jerk. And we can admit, yes, there are far too many churches that have become rigid and tribal. And there are far too many leaders that are control freaks and lack grace. But the solution to this problem, hear me, the solution to this problem is not endless speculation. The solution to this problem is not doubt and uncertainty as if that is more humble. So let's be clear about something. God's word tells us 
that healthy discipleship isn't endless doubts and speculation and uncertainty. Now, asking questions, wrestling, seeking understanding, it's a very, very good thing. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not entirely sure what you believe and you're asking questions, and you're wrestling, and you're, you, there is a level of doubt that is going on in your mind. You're not sure what you believe. That is great, and we welcome you here. Those questions and that pain and that angst are all welcome here, but, but let's understand some things about this. Wrestling and asking questions are great. Humility before Scripture and the Lord are fantastic. Look, our, our understanding is limited, We need to to recognize that. We need to be humble about how we approach the word of God. We need to be open and curious about people and about ideas and about the world. We shouldn't shut ourselves off to things. Look, being a self-righteous jerk is never a good thing. We should very much not want to be self-righteous jerks who are heavy-handed and rigid. So there is an aspect of questioning and wrestling and seeking understanding that are good things. There's a lot of false teaching. We need to be able to weigh what is true and what is false. And that takes asking questions and probing and thinking and wrestling. And sometimes we walk through seasons of doubt. That's all true. That's fine. But if the end of our questioning is just more speculation and more doubt and more uncertainty, and we get on that Ferris wheel and never jump off, If the end of our wrestling and our doubt and our speculation and our struggle is not deeper confidence in the Lord, not deeper trust in the Lord, deeper obedience, deeper righteousness, is not leading us to Christ, then we're not moving towards health. We're not moving towards spiritual health. We're not moving towards healthy discipleship. Because let's be honest, endless speculation gets you nowhere. A perpetual state of doubt gets you nowhere. Stiff arming, complete commitment to Jesus gets you nowhere. At best, at best, it keeps you from deeper maturity and intimacy with God. It keeps you from deeper love of God and love of others. It keeps you from radical sacrifice and service. No one who is in this perpetual state of doubt and uncertainty and speculation ever risked and loved and sacrificed for other people. You don't see them passionately worshiping God. And so at best, it will stunt our growth. At worst, it leads to cynicism and rejection of the gospel altogether. It will wreck your faith. It will undermine your faith. It will lead you to walk away from Christ. I would even ask those of you who don't profess faith in Christ in the room, whatever belief system you've given yourself to, whatever cause you've given yourself to, wherever you've sort of put your chips all in, let me ask you, does approaching that thing with doubt and speculation and uncertainty and not full commitment get you anywhere? Like there's no aspect of life where doubt and uncertainty and speculation and not full-on commitment will ever get us anywhere except just in this very superficial place. And so let me ask, Does this describe you in any way? Are you buying the lie that doubt and speculation and uncertainty is the same thing as humility? Are you buying the lie that a constant restlessness of belief is a path to healthy discipleship and maturity? Because my fear is that some of you, this is where you live. 
Some of you, you hold on to enough gospel and enough belief in Christ that you claim to follow Jesus, but you're more committed to your doubt and your speculation than you are to Jesus Christ himself. You're more committed to stiff-arming commitment. You're stiff-arming deep and complete surrender to Christ. And why is that? Have you ever asked yourself, why is that? What, what keeps you from full commitment, full confidence to Christ? Now, I'm sure you have your intellectual reasons, but are they more excuses than reasons? Let, let, me, let me press here just a little bit. Let me, let me poke, if I may, in, in all love and pastoral concern. Why do you stiff arm these things? Is it a status issue for you? Is it, do you gain status because you're the one who is so great at speculating? You're the one that's so great at poking holes in other people's beliefs? You, you kind of fancy yourself an intellectual and you're superior to other people because of the questions you ask and the doubts that you can raise? And you like the status that gives you? Is playing the cynic and the speculator giving you a certain image that you love and you like? Or how about this? Are you afraid? Is there something in you that fears all being all in with the Lord, all in with Christ? Do you actually look at what the, what the Bible calls you to, what the gospel calls you to, and you recognize that is a big cost? I mean, Jesus himself said, count the cost, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus laid it out there, hey, this is not an easy path. And are you afraid when you look full on to what scripture calls you into and you're like, I, there's no way. And so instead of submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ, you hide behind your speculations and your intellectual excuses. I mean, really, is it not easier just to continually debate and doubt the truth of God's word than actually believe and trust and face the junk in your heart? I mean, some of us, we wear a mask of speculation and doubt and uncertainty, but underneath the issue is we don't want to let go of control. We fear letting go of control. We fear what's going to happen if we are exposed and our sin comes out and we have to trust and submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ. Maybe you haven't purposefully embraced doubt and speculation and uncertainty, but you're allowing it to control you. For whatever reason, you haven't purposely said, hey, yeah, I'm going to play the role of the skeptic and the, the guy who speculates or the woman who's always doubting. But it has a grip on me right now. It's grabbed hold of my heart and my faith and it's wrecking me. I would ask you the same question, why? What, what is it inside that is keeping you from a full confidence in the Lord? What's keeping you from trusting him and committing to him fully? Are you perhaps chasing after myths? Now, you might not be chasing after myths as the kind of myths that Paul's talking about, but you may be chasing after other things that appear spiritual and, and sort of give you this sense of, hey, I'm getting somewhere in my faith, but all the while, it's distracting you from actually what's going on in your heart. You'll chase things that make you feel like you're growing spiritually, but all the while, it allows you to stay comfortably in your doubts and uncertainty. Why is it so hard for you to trust the Lord? What is it about the gospel that makes it hard for you to believe that the Lord is good and he is true and he is faithful? 
Those are in questions that I would invite you to wrestle with. So if healthy discipleship isn't doubt and speculation, what is it? Well, if you go back to verse 4, Paul contrasts speculation with the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so the word stewardship literally means plan or arrangement. So there is a plan, there is an arrangement of salvation from God that we have been given in his word. And so the structure and the purpose and the method of God's plan of salvation first laid down in the Old Testament, fully revealed in the New Testament, is found in the work and person of Jesus Christ. And so our call, this is what Paul is getting at to Timothy, he's saying, your call, Church of Ephesus, your call, First City Church, your call is to steward the plan of God. It is to steward the message of the gospel that has been handed to you. And proper stewardship is this. We faithfully believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we faithfully teach and proclaim this message to one another. Stewardship, if you are a steward of something, it is someone has taken something very valuable and precious and given it to you and said, hey, take care of this. And so to be a good steward, we properly honor it and recognize what its value and its worth, and we treat it as it needs to be deserved. We care for it in the way that we've been called to care for it. Speculating, doubting, constantly questioning whether it's true or not is not how we steward the gospel. We steward the gospel by believing it, by resting in it, by celebrating it, by going deeper into it and letting it transform our lives, and then we go and we teach other people those things. Speculation creates doubt. It erodes faith. Stewardship builds faith, builds confidence in the plan of God and his faithfulness to save. In verse 5, this is what Paul writes, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The word charge literally means instruction or teaching. So the aim of our teaching, the thing we've been charged to teach and instruct, the aim of it which in the Greek is the word telos, which means its ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose of the instruction that you and I have been given is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That last sincere faith, that's what I want to hang on here. The aim of our discipleship, the aim of our instruction is sincere faith, which means healthy discipleship is sincere faith. To have sincere faith is to have a true faith, a faith that honestly and fully believes in Christ. It doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't mean it's fully mature. That's a lifelong process. We are all in process our entire life. Our faith grows throughout our entire life. But what this means to have a sincere faith is it is committed to Christ more than it's committed to doubt and speculation and uncertainty. It's committed to growth It's committed to growing in confidence. It's committed to growing in knowledge of God. It's committed to growing in commitment to Christ. It's committed to growing in righteousness and growing in love. A sincere faith has a momentum forward. Yes, we stumble, we trip, it's messy. But when it's sincere, it's chasing after God in confidence. It wants to fully and completely trust in Christ. Now look, Scripture gives us a green light to bring our doubts and bring our pains and to bring our struggles to the Lord. 
This is important that we do not forget. God isn't after some, just shut off all of our pain, shut off all of our doubts, shut off all the wrestle that we have. We're invited to bring those things to the Lord. He isn't afraid of our questions. He isn't afraid of our struggles. But when we bring our doubts, we bring our pains to the Lord, when we wrestle and we question, we do so not to stay in that place. We do it because we want God to bring us out of that place. We want to grow in our faith. We want to mature in our faith. We want our confidence and our trust and our commitment to deepen. So bring your wrestles, bring your doubts, bring your pains, lay them before the Lord, wrestle with them in community. Don't hide those things. But a sincere faith says, I want Christ. I'm more than I want my doubt, more than I want my speculation. I want Christ. I want him to rescue me from these things. I want to rest in him. I want to know him. I want him to transform me. And so I bring these things to the Lord so that I might get Christ. And so sincere faith looks at Christ as more glorious than anything else and pursues him through all doubt and pain and struggles. And so are you growing in sincere faith? Are you pressing towards sincere faith? Are you chasing after Christ? Does your heart want to be resting in him and confident in him? Are you discipling other people towards that? When you disciple other people and they bring their doubts and they bring their speculations and their wrestles and their pain, are you moving them towards deeper faith in Christ, sincere faith in Christ? Not more faith in you, not more faith in the latest technique or the greatest book, but in Christ. So healthy discipleship is sincere faith. The other error that this passage exposes in many ways, is the other side of the same coin of doubt and speculation. So if healthy discipleship isn't speculation and doubt, here's the other thing healthy discipleship isn't. Healthy discipleship isn't theological knowledge. Some of you are probably going, what are you talking about? Yes, it is. (laughs) Healthy discipleship isn't theological knowledge. This is what I mean. Too often, we believe that healthy discipleship is equal to theological knowledge or skill in theological debate. Like if I am intellectually and theologically sharp, if I can get into the finer details of scripture and theology and philosophy and I can debate those things very well, if I never lose a theological argument, then I am mature. And so it becomes very easy to think that maturity is entirely based on my knowledge. Look, I don't doubt God's word. I'm not speculating about its truth. I'm confident in what I know. I'm confident in what God's word teaches, and so I'm mature. However, viewing healthy discipleship as theological knowledge alone is in many ways the same side of the, the coin as doubt and speculation. Here's what I mean. So the false teachers come into Ephesus, and they're teaching these things and causing people to doubt and to speculate. In doing so, these false teachers are putting themselves forward as, hey, we're the people with the theological knowledge here. We're the smart ones. We're the mature ones. But really what was going on was status. The false teachers were replacing status or maturity with status. They appeared to be mature. They appeared to be chasing maturity, but what they were really after was status. So when you and I chase after theological knowledge, 
as a sign of maturity, if we think that is what makes us mature, what we're really chasing is status. Let's be honest. We want people to think we're theologically sharp. We want people to think we're mature based on what we know. And it's very easy to flip into this. Because if, you, if you're in the church, theological knowledge gets you status very quickly. And so it's very easy to fall into this. But here's the problem. It reduces discipleship health entirely to knowledge. And just like doubt and speculation, this approach to discipleship avoids the deeper issues of the heart. Is it not easier to read books and fill up on head knowledge than it is to let theology wreck you and transform you and you have to deal with the mess in your heart? Is it not easier to talk with the person in gospel community about theology on a theoretical level rather than have to enter into their mess and figure out how theology and God's truth applies? That's hard. That's messy. That's difficult. That's scary. And so sometimes we run to theological knowledge just because we're trying to avoid. And so we can talk theology at an intellectual level and we can feel confident and in control. But are we dealing with our hearts? Are we growing in the mature ways that God's word calls us? Here's another problem. To believe that false teaching, if, you, if we believe the false teaching that healthy discipleship is simply about theological knowledge, then we begin to stake theology as the end itself rather than a means to an end. The purpose of theology isn't just the accumulation of knowledge and increasing our intelligence. If we go that route, then we begin to see maturity as equal to intelligence, meaning you will judge someone's maturity based on how much they know and how intelligent they are, how book smart they are. That's a very dangerous thing if we reduce maturity to how much knowledge a person has, how are we going to start judging others? How are we going to start treating those that maybe have learning disabilities? It's a very dangerous road to walk on when we reduce maturity to simply theological knowledge. But functionally, this is what we do. We sort of modify the famous statement, I think, therefore I am. We do this, I know, therefore I am mature. And so if healthy discipleship isn't simply theological knowledge, then what is it? Well, let's go back to verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So what is the goal of our charge, of our teaching, the knowledge we have been given in God's word? Love. Like the knowledge, the instruction that we've been given the end of that is not head knowledge. It's not intelligence. It's love. Love of God and love of others. And so just like healthy discipleship is sincere faith, healthy discipleship is love. So theology, understanding God's word, is always, always about deeper love. Deeper love of God, deeper worship of God, deeper confidence and faith and trust in God and his goodness and his plan of salvation. It's always about deeper obedience to God and also a deeper love of others. Theology should always lead us to a more radical, sold-out love for other people. 
if your theology is not leading you to a deeper love of God, a deeper worship of God, and it is not leading you to a deeper love and sacrifice for other people, then you've missed the point. You've missed the goal. You've missed the aim. What else does verse 5 say? Verse 5 also says that this love issues from a pure heart. The aim of our teaching and theology includes moral renovation. We talked about purity of heart when we went through the Sermon on the Mounts. But this is a, a life that is conformed to the image of Christ. It is a life that not only loves God, but out of that love walks in obedience. And so all theology is meant to transform us. Not just transform our intellectual categories, but transform our lives. Theology is meant to do moral renovation in us. Kind of like refurbishing a house. So we had some good friends on the East Coast that bought this townhome, and when they first bought it, it was barely livable. I mean, it was borderline condemned. I I didn't see it before they remodeled it. Mindy walked in, and, and she was scared to walk in. She was like, what did they do? What did they buy? I mean, it was terrible. They found like, uh, it's like social security cards and fake IDs in the wall, and there were cockroaches in the wall. It was just, it was weird. But our friends were fabulous at remodeling homes. And over time, they took their knowledge and they began to renovate that home. And so that home went from this disgusting wreck of a place to actually reflect something beautiful. And so through the knowledge that they had, renovation took place. And so through our theology, God renovates us. Through our knowledge of him, through understanding his word and what he has called us to do, it transforms our lives and our hearts. If it is not renovating you, then you've missed the aim. You've missed the goal. You've missed the point. Are you letting theology transform you? Verse 5 finally mentions a good conscience. To have a good conscience means you are sensitive to sin. You're sensitive to whether or not you you are walking in godliness or not. You're sensitive to how your attitudes and your actions line up with how God has called you to live. You're calibrated, so to speak, to righteousness and godliness. And so theology should be calibrating you to God and his word and his character. Here's another way to put this. Your theology should be giving you greater self-awareness. Like the deeper you go into theology, the more self-aware you should be. It should help you understand where sin hides out in your heart, where it hides out in your actions, where it hides out in your attitude. Theology should give you greater awareness of where you need the grace of God to transform you. It should make you sensitive to where you are in sin. And it should cause you to want to repent and turn from that sin. See, theology is meant to be powerful. It's meant to transform. It is meant to give us a sensitivity to sin so that we may walk in righteousness. If all it does is stay here, we've missed the aim. We've missed the point. We are not walking in discipleship health. And here's the scary thing. When theology becomes detached from love and purity and a good conscience and sincere faith, when our discipleship becomes unhealthy, listen to what Paul says happens to our conversations. Verses six and seven. Certain persons by swerving from these, meaning love and pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith, swerving from those things have wandered away into vain discussion. 
desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You see, without the proper aim and goal, our discipleship conversations become worthless and vain and empty. That's a scary thing to think. That if our discipleship and our use of theology is not aimed towards love that flows out of a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith, then we're wasting our time in gospel community. We're wasting our time in our discipleship. And so let me ask, are you using theology to dodge God and health? Have your conversations in gospel community become empty and without power, without meaning? Here, here's some ways that this can happen, and let me, let me press on you. Press on us all. Are we content just to talk about theology at an abstract level? Are we content to talk about things like God's love and sin and God's justice and God's sovereignty and, and all the things that we learn and we talk about, but never, ever, ever allow that to penetrate our heart and say, hey, here's how this has landed on me today. Here's where I struggle with this. Help me with this. Are we, are we convinced that, hey, I got a good category for God's sovereignty and I can explain the gospel and, and I can go through all these, this list, but I hide from ever talking about the way that that impacts me and the way that that's wrecking me, the way that I'm stiff-arming, the way that I'm not repenting of my sin? Are you convincing yourself? Are you covering your lack of true health and true maturity and true intimacy with God with your theological conversations? Are you deceiving yourself? Are you hiding behind theological conversations so you never have to talk about the areas you need to repent? So no one ever knows that your marriage is a wreck. So no one ever knows that you're struggling with lust or struggling with anxiety or or struggling with letting go of control. Are you using theological conversations and trying to sound theologically sharp to hide behind the fact that you haven't spent time in intimacy with God for six months or a year and God seems distant to you? And are you using deep theological conversations with those in your GC to dodge true intimacy, true renovation, true growth in godliness, true growth in in our conscience, true growth in our faith. Look, make no mistake, sound theology is absolutely necessary. I want us to be a theologically deep church. We're not pragmatists here. We are theologically driven. Everything we do has a theological conviction behind it. Without true, deep, robust theology, we will never love God as we should. We will never love each other as we should. We will never sacrifice for each other. We will sacrifice for the city. We will never go out into this world and preach the gospel. We will never build the church as we should. We will never have confidence in God's love for us as we should. We'll never walk in righteousness as we should. We need deep theology, but we need it to transform us. We need to use it in our discipleship so we go towards the true aim and the true goal. So how are we using theology? How are we using truth? May our aim, may our goal be discipleship health. May it be love for God, love for others. May it be a pure heart. We walk in righteousness. May our consciences be attuned to God and his word. And may our faith be sincere. This is healthy discipleship. This is how we take the knowledge of God and his word and apply it in the way he has called us to.
So in conclusion, here's another reason why I wanted to go through 1 Timothy. Timothy is an interesting character. We don't know a lot about him, but this is what we know. He was young, probably in his late 20s, early 30s. We also know that he was, according to Jewish custom, an illegitimate child. His father was a Greek. We learned this in, in Acts. I in, can't remember what chapter in Acts, but it's in Acts. What this means is, is that for Timothy, he walked around with this stain on his reputation. Hey, you're an illegitimate child. Timothy also struggled immensely. We see in both First and Second Timothy, Paul constantly encouraging him, hey, Timothy, step up, lead. Don't be fearful. So Timothy struggled. He was timid. And all these false teachers going around challenged him. We also learn towards the end of 1 Timothy that he had some physical ailments, that he faced physical illness on a consistent basis. And Timothy was weak. Timothy was wonderfully human, just like you and me. And yet he was called, called to build a healthy church, called to disciple. He was called to fight the good fight of faith. He was called into the work. His humanity, his weakness, his frailty, his own doubt didn't stop the call of God on his life, and it doesn't stop the call of God on your life and our life as First City Church. And here's what Paul writes to Timothy to encourage him. Here's how God's word comes to Timothy in the midst of all his challenges and all his brokenness. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Timothy, you are a child of God. Don't listen to what the world tells you. You're not illegitimate. You're a true child of God. And the word spoken over you is grace and mercy and peace through Jesus Christ. This is who you are. And this is what you've been called to do. You've been given a charge. You've been given a mission. Go, make disciples, build this church. And God's word to us is the same. First city, no matter your brokenness, no matter your pain, no matter your limitations, no matter the doubts you struggle with, the things you're wrestling with, if you are in Jesus Christ, here's the word over you, grace and peace and mercy through Jesus Christ. Go and make disciples. Here's the charge that you've been given. Build a healthy church. Allow the truth of God's word, allow the gospel to transform your heart, move you towards love. So go into this world and make disciples follow this blueprint. So church, I'm excited to spend the next three months in this book. I'm excited to see the ways that God is gonna move us towards health, grow us in maturity, and help us to work through our own fears and our own temptations and our own doubts confident because God's word is powerful. The charge Paul gave to Timothy is the same charge that God's word gives to us. So let's embrace that. Amen.